week's episode is brought to you by Support the Mountain's Herbal Parasite Cleanse. This formula targets the small and large intestinal tracts and larvae, the most broad-spectrum formula available today. 100% organic, formulated by Dr. Mikio Sanki, author of the Esoteric Acupuncture Series. For 10% off your first bottle, visit shopyogahub.com and use the coupon code CLEANSE at checkout. Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. What's up, Doc? <laughs> <laughs> I got you first. <laughs> you did. You did. Well, I'm getting used to it, though. After 120 shows, I'm just starting to get it. But who can predict what will happen on our next show? <laughs> Uh, I never know. Greetings, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. Along with Christina, I will be your host as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy in search of optimal health. And today we're going to be looking at healthy marriages and relationships with couples. We're going to be meeting and talking with Tim Patterson, a licensed marital and family therapist. Christina, if anybody wants to uh, get married or find out how to stay married, what should they do today? <laughs> Stop. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see if Tim kidding. agrees with that. That's the dialogue. Oh, my. <laughs> Don't do it. Stop. Don't do it. <laughs> uh, well, at any time during this show, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. Um, now, make sure you click submit, and no matter what year or when this is, we'll make sure that the question or comment goes directly to whomever it's addressed to, whether it be our special guest or Dr. Woolman or ourselves. And if you're listening to this as a podcast, please feel free to give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Thank you, Doc. Uh, you're welcome. So this is Magical Medical Tour, and we're always looking for things about health and optimal health and healing. And certainly in our uh, culture, marriage is a very important part of that. And if people are healthy in their life and healthy in their marriage, it makes for a better community. So we're going to today speak with Tim Patterson, who's been practicing uh, uh, marital and couples therapy for over 32 years and still going strong. Welcome, Tim. Hi, Glenn and Christina. Thank <laughs> you for having me. Oh, well, thank you for uh, being here. It's a delight honoring, to be here. Honoring our global community. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's, that's very right. exciting. Thinking maybe we'll do a group marriage today. If everybody calls in, can you marry people? Uh, no, I'm not actually uh, authorized to marry. Maybe but Segovia just, or Christina. I, but you can yeah. be, though. I could be. You could be I could for the be day. If I, if I wanted to, yeah. Oh. I usually come in, you know, after the fact to, to, <laughs> to mop up. <laughs> How about before the fact? <laughs> and sometimes before too. Yeah, that's good. Right. We're I very good. Be really I, smart, right? A very good idea to do some premarital <laughs> counseling if you're heading in that direction. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. I want. I have a lot of questions about that today. Mm -hmm. uh, Tim, as the medical guide, I always like to uh, suggest to people where we're going to go today. So first, mm -hmm. we're going to learn a little bit about you, how you got into the therapy, sure. uh, and uh, what brings you the joy in it. We also want to help some people that might be interested in becoming something like you, a marriage mm. and family therapist, and what the criteria would be. Mm -hmm. And then we want to get into the actual core of 
your type of practice and how you uh, work in uh, family therapy. We mm-hmm. we had a uh, former episode, episode 61, with Ann Diamond, who was a marriage and family therapist. And mm-hmm. I would suggest mm-hmm. to others to go to that show to put the two of these together and get all the things you'll probably need to have a perfect marriage. <sighs> Uh, and then uh, we'll good luck sort with of, that. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, ch- there's such thing. <laughs> uh, maybe we should have named this show something different. <laughs> I didn't realize we're we going to hopefully improve them, though. Yeah, there uh, you go. Oh, there, there you go. I like that. So, how does that sound to you? Sounds great. Excellent. So, Tim, mm-hmm. uh, when did you decide to uh, become? A therapist and specifically in marriage and family and couples therapy and relationships like that mm-hmm. and what what gives you the joy in that okay uh well going back to um i guess that story starts in the mid-70s i graduated from ucla in my with my undergraduate degree in psychology and uh at graduation uh they called the school of psychology and half of drake stadium stood up so I was, I was thinking to myself, great, what am I going to do with this? Because uh, half the world has this degree. And the other so, half needs it. It's perfect. Yeah, maybe. So I, uh, I, I promptly went and got married uh, <laughs> before I even had a job. Uh, but soon after, I went to work for a methadone maintenance clinic. And my job in that particular clinic was to track the... Um, the people that would come in for their methadone and go through their charts, and they asked me to find, if I could, some kind of common thread, common denominator uh, that seemed to run through the lives of these folks. Mm. And uh, the only thing I really could find, but that really did stand out to me, was the fact that almost without exception, they came from broken families and a string of broken relationships. So their ability to make lasting uh, fulfilling meaningful attachments was really impaired. And so that got me thinking in terms of uh, the importance of uh, coupling and the, and the whole aspect of commitment to one another and how that plays out in marriage. The, the thing, and I'll try and make this brief, but the thing that really uh, turned it for me, though, part of my job was to collect data on all of these folks. And this is going to date me, but this goes all the way back to the days of punch cards. Some of you may remember punch cards. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> and uh, I would take these, this box of cards to the UCLA uh, Computer Center and, and would run reports and, and run data and all of that stuff. Uh, and at the front of this box of cards, there was a, a gentleman, I'll, I'll say his name is Alan, um, uh, Alan Beltran, just to, uh, to make up a name. And, um, wow, that was pretty good name making. (laughs) You could have stayed with Alan, but no middle initial. Well, I, I, no middle initial, uh, for some reason, no one while I was there came in with a last name that started with the letter a. So, so Mr. Beltran was the first card I would see every morning Uh when I would take this information. And, uh, and, and so I never met him, never talked to him, didn't know who he was, but every morning there, his name was. Hmm. So uh, about three quarters of the way through my, my time there, I got a call from one of the clinics and that telling me that you can take Mr. Beltran's card out. And I said, oh, well, he's, he's finished, you know, he, he's, he's, uh, he's cleaned up his, his situation. Well, no, last night he put a bullet through his head. He killed himself. Mm-hmm. And that had a profound effect on me. 
just the fact that there was someone who I had never known, never met, but whose life was gone. And I began to reflect on the fact that there must be something I can do to try and help uh, people in, in my particular um, uh, way of thinking, which is to, to help assist them to be in relationships that fulfill them and that, and that are stable for them. And so that really kind of flipped the switch for me, and I decided to go into marriage and family therapy. Mm. That's interesting. Mm. Uh, just as an aside for people, yeah. methadone was something that we used and still use to help people try and get off of heroin. That's right. I worked mm. in a methadone clinic also when it was very early, maybe one of the first methadone clinics in the country, mm. and it was a, uh, kind of inspiring to me. I, in a way, I saw that Heroin had no prejudice, no bigotry. There were people right. there of all race, creed, color, sex, orientations, everything. Um, and it was very interesting. What made you mm -hmm. go into family therapy from being in a drug clinic rather than drug mm -hmm. counseling? Mm -hmm. Well, I never felt like I was really drawn or called to work in or with the substance abuse population. Huh, okay. but, but there was a sense in which I knew a little something about marriage. And, and I felt more of a call, more of a draw to help uh, couples try and work out, or families try and work out their differences and, and come to a place of better understanding and reconciliation when needed. And, and it, what, what sort of inspired me was the idea that this man, uh, who knows what his life was like and the mistakes he made, and he would never know this, but wherever he may be out there in the cosmos, he is, he is instrumental in helping one young man find a direction which my hope at least has been over these 30-some-odd years has helped other people along their journey in life. That's so great, it's, actually. It, it's, just a, it's just a reminder. It's kind of a consistent reminder that no matter what we're going through in life, our life touches others. And is that we, your health tip? Uh, no, actually, I have a far more practical health tip for later on. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's, a, that's a great story because yeah. uh, everybody has the ability to teach somebody something or help somebody somewhere, mm -hmm. and that was very inspiring. Mm -hmm. You know, thank you. I Christina was that, bouncing a lot. I noticed. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you've hit a chord. <laughs> nice work, and it's still early. Uh -huh. <laughs> So I noticed that you've been married for about 37, 38 years, That's and right. you've been in practice for about 32 years. That's right. I wonder, does the marriage help your profession more, or does the profession help your marriage more? Oh, that's a great question. And I have to say, it's an it's, it's a, a open door that, that really influences both directions. Mm -hmm. There are times, quite frequently actually, when I'm working with a couple, and I am struck with how, uh, how truly fortunate I am. Mm. And, and, you know, just, um, I, well, fortunate's the word, you know, that I chose the woman I chose to be with, uh, yeah. you know, just the, just the, 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 the sense that, um, I can, I can come home after a long day to that, that person in my life. And then on the other side of that, there, are, there are certainly times, you know, where we all have our, have our low moments, you know, we're not our best selves. When what I know does actually, I think, help and influence the way I listen and the way I can therefore respond to her when she's not necessarily, you know, in her best place. And so it, it really kind of, uh, it kind of inspires both ways, I think. 
Do you ever use the I'm the therapist card? No, 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 no. Uh, I learned very early on when I was still in graduate school not to go there. Yeah. I can't actually repeat what she said to me, uh, but uh, it, it let me know right off the bat that that's not, that's not who I'm to be. Yeah. <laughs> now we got that cleared up right away. Yeah, I, would, I would say <laughs> smart. Yeah. Very good. Go ahead, Christina. I was going to say that's perfect. Right before he even graduates, it's set. <laughs> oh yes, that's right. right. Yeah, that boundary went down very quickly. <laughs> yeah, I like that. So just just for those that uh, are interested in potentially becoming a mm-hmm. marital family counselor, mm-hmm. what is the training for that? And is there continuing education? Mm, there is. Yeah. Just before, if it's okay, before we go there, you had mentioned about what. Uh, what in the profession is sort of the magic for me? Yes. Uh, and there was something I wanted to share there in, in so far as uh, usually when, when couples come to see me, they, they're sort of at their, uh, they're, they're sort of at their last, their last effort. You know, they've done everything they can to try and, and fix things and they haven't been able to. So there's a lot of despair and there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of, sometimes a lot of hopelessness. And they're, they're usually very caught in, in a pattern, which we'll talk about later, uh, where they're really unable to listen and hear each other. And so what really gives me the juice is being able to help them understand those patterns that they've created between the two of them and watch them move from guardedness and from um, you know, a sense of their defensiveness to a place where they're softer and they're starting to open up to one another, and there's actually reconciliation that begins to occur. That that really is the the sort of magic that keeps the clinical work fresh for me. When you see their faces change and they suddenly become uh, more open. That's right, and they start to re rediscover, re-experience those feelings of bondedness and closeness and and uh, and attachment that brought them together in the first place. That. Uh, that's really wonderful to see. It doesn't always go that way, of course, mm-hmm. but when it does, uh, that's that's a very exciting moment. I can see that. Yeah. So then, to your other question about the training process, yes, to to be a marriage and family therapist in the state of California, and I, I believe this is true in everywhere in the country, you need a master's degree in marriage and family therapy, and then that's usually a two to three year process. Um, doing your academic work. There's often a practicum piece that gets put onto that too. So you start to do a little bit of, of clinical work under supervision, of course. And then when you finish your, uh, your degree work, then you begin an internship. And uh, that's where you need to accumulate, I think it's 3,000 hours of clinical work and supervisorial work. Uh, and that usually takes people, you know, two to three years, it can be longer. Uh, And then once you have finished the internship, that's, of course, all under supervision by a licensed uh, therapist. Uh, Then you sit for your exams. I believe there are two now these days, both written. And once you pass those, you can hang your shingle. Very nice. And is there continuing education like we have Uh, in medicine? Yes, there is. I'm I'm happy to say. So every two years, your license needs to be renewed. And you have to have accumulated 36 hours of of continuing education in order to uh, renew your license. Mm -hmm. And there are certain requirements. 
six of those 36 units have to be in law and ethics. So every therapist, regardless of how long you've been practicing, mandatorily must take a course in law and ethics every two years. And then at the front end, you also need as a mandatory requirement, uh, I think it's a course in um, abuse, uh, domestic violence and abuse. Hmm. And um, there's one other one which I'm blanking out on. Not on pain management. We have that in pain management and oh, elder sure. abuse, things like that. And elder abuse, yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Well, if it comes back to you, bring it up. I will. Um, we'll move forward. Uh, before we get into the core of your actual therapy, mm-hmm. um, on this show, we always talk, when we're talking with specialists in different fields of medicine, we always try to find the preventive uh, things rather than, mm-hmm. you know, okay, you have your back surgery, we're going to be interviewing a specialist in uh, mm-hmm. back and spine problems soon, and we would want to know, are there things you could do ahead of time to uh, prevent back problems? So. Mm-hmm. Is there uh, sort of a <clears throat> way of protecting yourself if you're thinking about going into a marriage situation and relationship? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the things that you should do ahead of time to prevent it from failing? Mm, great. And in, yeah. and in that question, at the end of that question, mm-hmm. I'd like to know, have you ever met with any couple that you've actually said, don't get married? Mm. Oh, that's a great question. Yes. As, well, I'll answer that one first. I have. Okay. They're rare, fortunately, but there have right. been a couple, three times when uh, the couple who have come in for some premarital counseling are just so um, immature. Uh, mm. They're really not ready to take on the uh, rigors of marriage and the commitment that it requires. Really, uh, marriage, like family, like parenting, is such a selfless act. There is so much necessity for selflessness in it. That when you have two people who are well, uh, uh, really just completely self-absorbed and caught up in their own, um, the, the, you know, basically b- the, the thought that the world revolves around them, there's little room for the partner. And so sometimes that presents itself as um, a couple who have great fun together, but that's about all they have going for them is the good time they share. You know, um, that couple concerns me because there is little internal strength going for them Mm. in terms of their ability to listen to one another, to uh, open themselves to one another, to communicate, to resolve conflicts, which are inevitable. And so there have been, they're rare, but a couple of times when I've had to suggest to couples that, no, this is not a good idea. Maybe, maybe down the road a ways, but each of you need to do maybe a little individual work. Uh, you need a little more time together to really get to know each other before you make this step. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah. But at, in terms of the, the first question, um, yeah, I think it's a great idea for couples to come in. And, and it kind of gets a little more into what we're going to talk about in a few moments. So um, one of the things that often comes up is that couples, when they before they marry, and, and they've probably not um, uh, been together all that long, or, or maybe they've been together a few years, uh, are, are very much feeling what I like to call the in-loveness, that feeling of, uh, of um, a wonderful romantic um, fervor. And 
maybe they've been together for a while and they've noticed that that feeling has begun to change or fade a bit and so it creates a worry. Well, maybe we're not meant for each other. Maybe uh, this is all a mistake. So we have to look at that in premarital counseling because very often uh, all that has happened there is something very natural, very normal, which is that they're moving from that kind of place of, of uh, in loveness to really getting to know each other as real people. And when we get to know each other as real people rather than who um, we want our partner to be or who we hope they will be, then inevitably we're going to run into differences and those differences are going to create conflict between us. So one of the best things to do in premarital work, which is also consistent with what we do in marital or couples therapy, is we begin to look at the patterns that they create between the two of them and how they dysfunction in regards to their listening abilities and their ability to remain open to each other and not wall off and not become defensive and not counter complain and do all of those things that tend to create uh, um, very negative, very conflicted feelings in people. Excellent. Since marriage is becoming, has already become a, a major institution, uh-huh. Do you think that we should be teaching about many of the things that you talk about in the schools? Um, mm. And if so, how early should the training be? Oh, that's a great question. Honestly, not one I thought a whole lot about, so it's just sort of coming off the cuff here. Um, I would say it would be a very good idea to introduce some kind of a simple basic curriculum about the importance of relationships and how to develop uh, intimacy uh, with one another and probably in in the school age uh, you know population that would be about learning how to be selfless learning how to share what I have more um, uh, maybe learning a little bit about some of the fundamentals of listening uh, to people and how to affirm or validate the feelings that other people share with you rather than just uh, promote your own opinions and ideas. Um, so uh, I'm not exactly sure how, what, what a kind of curriculum would look like for that, but as far as the age goes, I would say somewhere in the elementary school, that oh, would nice. be a great place to start that. Is, I, I would say, you know, as soon as children are, are able to grab, grasp hold of the concept of sharing, it, the world doesn't just revolve around them. Uh, be a great time to start that training. You know, as you were saying that, I was thinking, mm -hmm. forget about marriage. That's just great training for life. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. Yeah, because you're going to run into that wherever you are. Really, I mean, the the topics that you brought up those are those are about just. I mean, everything with people is a relationship. So mm -hmm. marriage is just one version. That's right. That's right. In fact, the things that I talk about that relate to marriages and couples are the same kinds of ideas and principles that relate to any relationship we have, whether it's in our workplaces or, um, you know, amongst our friends, within our families. So let's get to the core. Mm -hmm. uh, people come in to see you, and you have your way of working with people. Mm -hmm. you, have a, you have an attachment theory that you talk about, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm really indebted to the really fine work of Dr. Susan Johnson and uh, what she calls emotionally focused couples therapy or EFT. Um, over the years, you know, there are lots of schools of thought about how to do 
couples therapy, and I'm somewhat eclectic when it comes to um, that, trying to find the best approach for the particular couple, because obviously not everybody is the same. But this, this kind of uh, theoretical core and clinical core seems to me to have been the thing that works the best. So it's a combination of attachment theory, what we call systems theory, and what we call experiential psychotherapy. So in terms of attachment theory, uh, the way I would explain it is this. Um, um, we're always, whether we're conscious of it or not, and, and most of the time we're not conscious of it, we're always emotionally navigating the separateness and the closeness that exists between the two of us. And uh, I like to use the um, analogy, and in, in yoga practice and in meditation practices, breath is kind of central and key to, to a good practice. That's my very limited understanding. And it's kind of like that in couples as well. So if you, if you have, um, let's see if I can use my hands here. If you have two people and they are uh, always uh, uh, tied to one another's hip, that is to say that they're, they're so close that they can't really think independently, they can't really act independently, then you have a relationship that looks sort of like this. It's as if you would be taking a breath in and not letting it out. Mm. And the result of that is that you, you'll, you'll collapse, you'll dysfunction. By the same token, if you're out here like this and you're, and you're separate from one another with very little or no connection emotionally, then it's like letting breath out but not taking another breath in. And the effect is the same. You'll mm -hmm. collapse. So really, the, the, the sort of key to a healthy, emotional, intimate tie or connection, attachment that people are seeking is this motion, where they are moving like, like the, the, uh, the lungs, letting air in, letting air out, and that they can navigate this comfortably with one another. Uh, oftentimes, when couples are too close and personalities being different, usually one may be a little more dominant than another, over time you get something that kind of looks like this, which kind of works for a while because it's complementary, but eventually people begin to get tired of that, they begin to resent that, and it starts to fall apart on them. Um, and sometimes people sort of have the motion, but they do this. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not smooth, there's no sort of easy rhythm to it. So they have these intense moments of togetherness and then these sort of ripping intense moments of separation. And that leaves people feeling exhausted and often uh, missed or not understood. So uh, we, we try and do, uh, couples come in, typically they have whatever the particular issues are. Uh, all couples have battlegrounds issues that they tend to argue or have conflict about, that, that they, um, they have sort of repeating conflicts of variations on the same theme. And I usually find, I tell couples, you know, it's not so much that we're going to focus on the issues. We're going to focus on the pattern that exists between the two of you that keep those issues alive, that prevent you from having this ability to move close and to be separate in a more smooth and rhythmic motion.
And so that gets us then into the process of learning how to listen, uh, learning how to put oneself to the side temporarily so that you can tune in, learning how to give necessary validation or affirmation, even even uh, when you're not necessarily in agreement with what your partner is thinking or what they're perceiving, um, so that people can really begin to um, hear one another. Well, that was very good. I, mm-hmm. I think we should mention to people that are listening to this podcast, uh, rather than viewing it, it would be a good idea to see all those hand movements. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Sorry. Yeah, that's good. That's, no, it's very good. Mm-hmm. So when you when you're starting this process with people, mm-hmm. you have to. I'm assuming that you have to watch how they communicate first. That yeah. gives you your process and where you start learning. We talk about yeah. on Magical Medical Tour the uh, six aspects of of life, and one of them is patterns of behavior mm-hmm. for each individual. But in this particular case, each individual is bringing their pattern of behavior, but they've now created. A, uh, a relationship pattern of behavior. That's right. That's right. And usually when couples come in, they, they come with the attitude that the problem is in my partner. <laughs> you know, that it, they, they're hoping, whether they verbalize it or not, that the therapist will kind of get as quickly as they can the perception they hold that the partner is the problem and that we just need to fix the partner. And of course, that that's sort of the first task of marital or couples therapy is to dissuade them of that and to help them begin to realize that they both contribute for positive and for ill to the to the patterns or to the to the process of the relationship. So I often I often tell couples somewhere in the first couple of sessions, you know, I don't from a from my perspective, I don't see my client to be you and I'll point to the husband. You're not the problem. And I don't see my client being you, pointing to the wife, you're not the problem. What I, my client is the third person, the relationship that exists between the two of you. That's, that's where the problem lies. Do you feel that the couples in, in their solipsistic attitude of thinking that it's all about them, mm-hmm. they're not capable of realizing it's, uh, it's about what you just spoke of, that there is a relationship Mm. issue? Is that the way that you go about that? Yeah, I think that what, what, I think that they're, they're not conscious of it. But when I point this out to couples, they always resonate with it. So it's, it's, it's something therapists call it the unthought known. I know that's a bizarre way of saying things, but it's very Zen-like. Yeah, it is, isn't it? But it's there, they know it, but they don't know that they know it until they hear it fed back to them and then they resonate with it. But usually in their defensiveness, because people come in, most of the time they're hurt or they're anxious and they're therefore in protective mode. They're, they've become very defensive. They can only hear uh, with a very narrow band um, is all that's getting in. And so this helps them to relax. It helps them to realize that it's going to be their mutual responsibility to make some changes in themselves so that they both will have to contribute to the solutions that they're finding. And usually uh, people start to relax then and they can settle into the work. 
because they're not feeling quite so defensive. What happens when friction arises in a family? Well, typically, um, whatever the issue, like I said, it could be, it could be anything. Uh, somebody says something that the listener hears as accusational or critical. And it, it may be the, the, the person is trying to make a request, but they say it in a way that implies or is more directly a criticism of the individual. And so the reaction to that, you can imagine, is to become defensive, to counter complain. You know, well, that may be true of me, but what about you? And so it sets off a pattern of defensive listening and defensive responding that escalates between the two of them. So the typical anatomy of a fight is that the couple will start on an issue, whatever it may be, it could be some minor thing. After they are in this defensive pattern long enough, they start to attack one another's characters. So they start to make comments about the personality of the partner that are disparaging or critical. And as that escalates and goes on, and usually by now things are getting very heated up, then they will start to attack the relationship itself. And this is usually when you hear things like, well, maybe this was just all a big mistake. Mm -hmm. you know, or if this continues, I'm going to have to leave. I'm going to, we should get a divorce. You know? And then usually that really escalates things. And, um, and, and then either, either, either the fighting gets very ugly or one person takes off and leaves. It would seem to me then that since it is couples, the person that's saying something mm -hmm. needs, needs to be aware of the way that they're saying it so it doesn't mm -hmm. sound aggressive or it doesn't mm -hmm. sound attacking. And yeah. the person listening needs to hear it in the way that is just so that we can have a discussion, not an attack on me, and I have to respond to attack back. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so that's true, Glenn. On one level, it isn't sometimes what we say, it's how we say it mm -hmm. that really um, uh, accounts for a lot. Uh, the, the common, the most common pattern I see is that one, one uh, person in, in the dyad um, and usually this has to do with history, you know, how they were raised and the various influences they had growing up, which is why, by the way, we, we do spend some time taking some history to get to, get to know uh, a person's background, because we all bring our luggage to relationships and we unpack them, whether we're conscious of doing that or not. We all do that. So usually there is someone who uh, grew up where in their significant uh, relationships, it's usually with caretakers, they perhaps didn't feel that their emotional life, the expression of their feelings, uh, was getting through or mattered very much. Maybe that caretaker was unavailable or absent much of the time. And when they were, they were sort of detached. So a person will learn as they grow up to suppress what they feel, to diminish the importance of it, to even dismiss it in themselves, and therefore they'll tend to dismiss it in other people. At the same time, the other partner may have grown up with someone who was sort of intermittently there. What I mean by that is sometimes the caretaker was available and responsive, and sometimes they were absent or unresponsive. It was sort of unpredictable. 
And interestingly, what we find in attachment theory is that those folks tend to uh, get very triggered, very emotionally aroused with anxiety and almost sometimes to levels of panic. Uh, and so they're sort of desperate to create uh, a closeness or a, a feeling of being heard and being understood. So when you, when you have these two people together in a relationship, you can kind of imagine what goes on. If one person is trying to get uh, heard and perhaps doing that in an aggressive way or in a critical way, and the other person is trying to diminish or dismiss the importance of all of that and trying to get away from it, you can see where the one person is playing right into the Achilles heel of the other and vice versa. Hmm. And so the result of that is that they really can't listen to one another. And, they, and usually what happens is that the, the party who is more dismissive in their, in their approach will not be able to stay in the conversation and they will want to leave and the other individual will go after them to try to continue the conversation. And so want, they, they can't they get stuck there. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back again to the sure. uh, to before the marriage situation. Mm -hmm. It seemed it seems to me, aside from having a class or a course on marriage and communication, mm -hmm. maybe there should also be something on how to pick the right person. You know, we see mm -hmm. sure. we see a person that will find the alcoholic, abusive right. person, and they get rid of them, and they find the next one, and they keep going in the same pattern of behavior. Mm -hmm. Or they find the person that this person is uh, broken, and I can fix them. Mm -hmm. uh, do you ever do you ever end up speaking to one group of people, not both sexes, but one sex or the other? and mm -hmm. say, this is how you should look for a mate, or this is what you should find. I know that mm -hmm. we have all of these programs now online where you can write down all the things you're looking for. Oh, right, the characteristics but, or traits. Yeah, mm -hmm. but maybe those are wrong. Mm. Well, they're not wrong in the sense that they're, they operate on a certain level. But I think that on a deeper level, you're, you're, you're kind of uh, um, hitting on something important there, Glenn, in that uh, sometimes I will recommend if a couple comes in, that the individual needs to do some therapy on themselves first mm, before okay. we can really do the couple's work. So I will sometimes refer that person to another therapist to start to do that, that individual work. Because it, it isn't so much, I think, about selecting someone with the right criteria. It's more about knowing myself right. and knowing what my influences were and, and a little bit about where... Um, you know, my strengths are, of course, but also where I'm vulnerable. And so that when I'm meeting somebody and I'm having all those strong, initial, uh, uh, sexual, attracted, uh, wonderful feelings, um, emotional feelings that we have, uh, I also have enough maturity to know that I don't really know this person yet. Mm -hmm. And I need to mark time with them in order to, to really get to know them on deeper levels. I think that's very, very important. Um, even if someone, you know, it happens, you meet somebody and you're smitten and you just say, this is the one, and it turns out that they are, it's still a good idea to really have known, um, to know yourself and to get to know them so that some of these patterns can be, uh, addressed. Excellent. I want to, uh, find out a little bit about has, has marriage therapy uh, changed 
in 50 years and where will it be in the next 50 years? We've seen recently that there are 50 shades of gray, and we probably know that there are 100 shades of relationships. So if somebody right. came to you and uh, a couple that loved each other mm-hmm. and wanted to be married, but the woman was saying, I want a polyamorous relationship so I can see other men. Mm-hmm. And the man says, I want to occasionally be in a homosexual relationship with other men, but the two of us want to be married. Would they see you or are there specialists out there that deal with some mm-hmm. of these new types of, of concepts, you know, like a Dan mm-hmm. Savage uh, mm-hmm. might be, even though he's not a therapist, he seems to give really good advice and understanding of those situations. Mm-hmm. Would they still see someone like yourself or they is could. there something different? No, they, they could. I mean, uh, what I try and do is, is understand a couple that come in, you know, and, and not, not, um, um, and, uh, what would the word be anticipate? It's not, it's not for me to tell them how they should be, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but rather take them where they are and help them to, uh, understand each other and what they particularly need from each other and from the relationship. I suspect that whatever the, um, nature of their relationship, whatever they want it to be, uh, these principles of attachment and how they form meaningful uh, trusting attachments would be at the core of that work. Mm-hmm. That they would need to have a good, healthy, mature understanding of one another. Uh, certainly, and if there were, if it was going to be more of a relationship where um, other people were going to be intimately involved, that would, I would imagine, be especially important. Um. Tim, I have a question about, sure. you know, because kind of tagging on to what Glenn's last question about how, you know, our, the, the way culturally that the different societies are beginning to change, you know, marriages, you know, could be between two people of the same sex, etc. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But also, um, do you find that more and more people are moving towards therapy? Because I, I do know mm-hmm. at one point growing up, mm-hmm. therapy was there's something wrong with you if you're right. going to therapy. The stigma, right. Right, I mean, it's just that. And as it expands, would you see yourself doing therapy, for example, online, like what we're doing right now? Oh, yeah, sure. So just to kind of go back to what Glenn was saying there a moment ago, um, uh, yeah, I, I think that 50 years ago, there really wasn't any marriage or, or family therapy available. It really didn't start to come into existence until about the early to mid-70s. Wow. Before that, people would just go to their clergy person if they had one. Oh, that's right. right. Yeah, to talk about whatever their, their you know, um, issues were. So it's really, as a, as a profession, as a discipline, it's really very new on the scene. Mm. And certainly, uh, it has become, as you're suggesting, far more accessible to people um, it used to be back in the in the 50s and 60s that the psychoanalytic method was sort of the, the thing that people went to for therapy. And yes, the idea was, well, you have to have a mental illness to, mm-hmm. to do that or some sort of a neurotic problem. Uh, and few people could afford it because the, 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 uh, the method was four or five times a week for two or three years. Oh, and no. so it wasn't something that was really accessible to most people. It was sort of only available for, for, you know, people with a lot of cash. Mm-hmm. Um, and so certainly we have, um, been able to broaden the, the 
types of therapy and the accessibility of, of the therapy process for, for people. And uh, that's been true, too, in the, in the marriage and family field. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you see it going online? Oh, yeah. And yeah, as a matter of fact, um, I have a client in uh, Dubai who I see every week through Skype. Great. Another couple in Japan and uh, a couple of people up in uh, Northern California. So um, I was very leery of Skype at first, but I find that, you know, because you have most of the visual cues uh, that are ne necessary, that it, it's a pretty effective way to do therapy. Hmm. Um, phone therapy is another option, although I don't, I don't care for it as much myself because you don't have the all of the visual um, cues, and they, they really do communicate a lot to us mm. uh, when we're having particularly intimate conversation. And it gets very cumbersome to do that with a couple, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. even with a conference call type of thing. But not to say, you know, it can't be done. It's, I, I do that in a pinch. Mm. So yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think certainly technology can, uh, can be a useful thing. Mm. Wouldn't that be nice? You have your hmm. office and people just Skype in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, I, 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 this isn't my field, so I don't know uh, that much about it, but I know that people that do life coaching yes. have been doing this sort of work through the phone, and I'm sure they use FaceTime and Skype and, and everything else. Um, you know, uh, they've been doing that for a number of years. It's, it's quite a common practice. Yes, yes. So. Oh, good. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll be your platform. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Tim, yeah. it's, it's clear that it's important to pick the right mate. Mm -hmm. uh, mm. How does one pick the right therapist? Ah, <laughs> it's, a great, a it's a great question. Well, um, I think it's a good idea if you want to engage therapy to shop a little bit. Um, a lot of times people, because of the cost, want to go through their insurance carrier, which is completely understandable, and they want to find someone on their, in, their, in their network. And it's, it's a little like just picking a name. And most people aren't very comfortable with that. Um, years ago, I used to advertise in the yellow pages, but I don't do that anymore because that's not how people really choose their therapist. It's more word of mouth. It's more, well, I went to this person and I had a good result and I think it would be good for you or you'd, you'd have a good experience. It, it happens more like that, I think, because of the nature of the relationship and the, just the intimacy involved in it. Um, so I think what you, what you probably want to do is find someone who you feel listens to you, someone who you feel safe with, um, someone who is willing to, um, of course, put themselves aside and tune into whatever the concerns are that you bring. And somebody who, um, um, well, I, I kind of mentioned it, somebody who's willing to listen to you and um, create a safe environment for you. Uh, in the studies that have been done about what affects real change in the therapy process, it's interesting that the therapist's um, uh, orientation, their theoretical orientation, only accounts for about 15% of change. Mm. But the person of the therapist 
and the relationship that the therapist has with the client accounts for between 30 and 45 percent of the change. So it's, it's a pretty significant uh, uh, you know, piece there. Now some people um, have very specific problems that tend to be treated more effectively with certain kinds of therapy. So for instance, cognitive behavioral therapy is something that works very well with certain problems. Uh, the kind of work I do works very well with certain kinds of problems. So it also depends a little bit on um, the specialty of the therapist. So you want to inquire about uh, what the therapist uh, does, what they're comfortable doing, and whether, of course, they're comfortable working with the kind of concern that you have. What's, a, what's an average amount of time that someone should see a therapist? I mean, is this mm. where you're going to be part of the marriage? It's going to be... <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> Uh, or is it uh, that would be like a Twilight Zone episode when <laughs> <laughs> take your therapist home with you? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, you know that that might be the answer in the end. Uh, I don't think so. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sorry, I got derailed so, there. What, what was the question <laughs> about how many sessions? Do, oh, do how many sessions? I mean, this yeah. is, let's let's talk well, first premarital, then during a problem. Uh, okay, so premarital therapy or counseling, I usually do somewhere between four and six sessions with a couple. I like to use a little instrument called the Prepare, um, which is is just a little paper and pencil inventory that takes a look at various categories that are relevant to a couple that are considering marriage. And it, it does take a little look at their internal strengths and what I think of as sort of their external strengths, which would have to do with, say, with, you know, their leisure activities and things of that sort. Um, so about four to six sessions. Couples therapy, it really depends on the severity and the nature of the problem. So it's kind of hard to predict. But I would say most couples, somewhere between 12 and 24 sessions, usually can can uh, get to a point where they're listening to each other and where they're understanding themselves and their partner in a new light. And they're at least able to sort of take the work from there and begin to apply it to their daily lives. Some people decide that they want to just continue, you know, because they're getting a lot out of it and they get into other issues, other things that come up, whether it's historical or, or um, you know, other key relationships they have currently in their life. So it, it all depends. But somewhere in that 12 to 24 range, I would say. Does insurance uh, cover therapy? Uh, yeah, usually. Yes, it does. Um, it, of course, depends on the plan you have, sure. um, but uh, there is usually some sort of benefit for outpatient mental health. Yeah, and it used to be that uh, insurance companies, I'll use the word discriminate, you would discriminate against marital therapy or family therapy. They would only pay for individual therapy, mm. but, but the laws have changed there, so now um, uh, they will pay for... for um, either couples or family therapy. So that's been an improvement. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's very good. Yeah, I, I, it's good to hear that. I didn't know that. But that's the way that they play it out so that it's more of a therapy, mental therapy rather than relationship. That's the way they could play it out in the insurance process. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. So now let's, we're talking about marriage and successful marriages, but we know that they're not all successful. Mm -hmm. uh, what are the early warning signs that 
mm-hmm. should tell a couple that maybe they need therapy because they're heading in a direction of disaster? Oh, okay. That's a great question. So going back to the idea of the patterns that they create between the two of them, usually what happens is that one or both begin to become very guarded. And, uh, and as, they, as they kind of progress along this guardedness with one another and they feel the separation emotionally between the two of them, um, a lot of times then that will create or produce a defensiveness, uh, a kind of conflicted defensiveness within the relationship. Um, and, you know, if they don't start to get into some work then and they sort of ignore that, uh, they can begin to start to turn away from one another. And usually that really distresses, if not both, at least one of the, of the, um, the people in the relationship. And, and that's usually when I'll get a call. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of that, that progression that, that happens. So what are some of the other, other early warning signs? Uh, well, certainly um, if there's abuse that's, that begins to happen, um, that doesn't necessarily just mean physical abuse, of course, that's, sure. that, that must stop. Um, but also if there is a kind of um, emotional abuse, manipulation, control uh, that, that comes into the relationship, those are all indicators that they need to get some help right away. Okay, so they've come to you, they've gotten the help. Mm-hmm. Are there ever times where you actually say uh, you should separate, you should divorce, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, how do you get somebody, do you do divorce therapy, mm-hmm. I guess is the other way of saying that. Yeah. And mm-hmm. part, of, part of my other question in this one mm-hmm. is if you hear the people say, we're staying together for the kids. Oh, uh, yes. Is that healthy? Uh <laughs> <laughs> Big question. Uh, let me let me go back to the first, and I'll work up to that one if I exactly. can. Exactly. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. No. No problem. So um, uh, let's see. So the first part of that was: uh, Are there are there times when I've told couples that they really need to divorce? Right. Uh, that has happened. It's very rare. Um, there's a there's a song by you too. I love called Miracle Drug. And there's a lyric in that song, if I quote it correctly, it goes something like, uh, there's no failure here, sweetheart, unless you quit. Mm. So my mm. sense is, and, and you know, it's my bias as a marital therapist, that, that couples who did find an attachment with one another and have a bond, however, however eroded or however conflicted it may be, can, if they are willing, work through that and renew and reconcile and rediscover that that bond that drew them together in the first place. Mm-hmm. But when one person and sometimes couples come into couples therapy with one partner already having made the decision, not having shared it necessarily, but made the decision that they want out, uh, basically wants to use the couples therapy as a way, a safe place to tell the partner that they're done and that they need to move on. Those are very painful, very probably some of the most difficult experiences that I personally have with couples. But mm-hmm. sometimes that's that's what happens because they've just reached a point where they don't want to continue to try anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, to answer the second part of your question, so I sort of divide it into two parts. There are times when couples 
have so much conflict between them. They're, things are so hot between the two of them that they just can't listen anymore to one another. I will suggest that they look at a temporary separation, not necessarily to divorce, but in order to get to a place where they can calm down enough and make good use of the therapy and the things that they're learning in therapy. But clearly, if the relationship has become uh, abusive, especially if it's a domestic violence kind of situation, uh, then, yeah, there needs to be separation. And, and often um, it's, it's best that, you know, they perhaps go their own way if, if, that, can't be, if that can't be corralled and changed. Okay, how about the kids? But, but the kids, yeah. So, you know, I, I, uh, I was driving to work, uh, this is about four or five years ago now, listening to a radio show, and uh, it, it was on this subject. They were talking to adults who were calling in who came from um, divorced parents. And uh, I guess they must have taken on my, on my ride maybe, maybe eight or nine calls. And you got eight or nine different answers. So some people said, you know, it was devastating. It was the worst thing that my parents could have done. I haven't recovered from it yet. Other people that called and said, you know, it was the best thing they could have done. It was so miserable. I was so relieved when they, when they divorced and, you know, they got happier and our family, you know, was, was just a much better place. So you, and you get everything in between. So, you know, I think it really depends on the, the, the two adults and how they address, if they're going to divorce, how they address the children to make sure the children know, A, it's not their fault, because children will immediately assume that, you know, that if I had just cleaned up my room better, or if I just hadn't hit my brother the other week, you know, maybe then they wouldn't be telling us this, that they're going to separate. So children really need a lot of assurance about that. And secondly, and just as important, to know that these um, children are loved by both parents and that they're not losing either parent. And so as long as the parents can uh, do the best job they can to assist the children and be there for them and to create as little change in their life as possible, obviously, living in separate residences is a big change, but to try and, and create a, as little change as possible so that mom and dad are still accessible in the neighborhood, so that, uh, you know, we're not losing our friends in school, we're not moving out of, out of the area or something like that, then the impact is lessened on children. And how the parents then deal with the inevitable pick-up and drop-off issues, or maybe there are new people that come into their lives, so you then have blended family issues that come up, as long as they are able to not use the children as some sort of an emotional football, you know, bargaining chip kind of a thing, but can let the children be free to be on their, their own journey of growth and development, then I think kids stand the best chance of coming through a divorce unscathed. Do you ever bring the kids into the therapy session? Uh, yeah, on occasion, on occasion when, when it seems like the work calls for it, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, not of course, to work on marital issues, but to right. work then on the family issues and the impact that if there's, say, a separation or divorce happening, how, how that might be affecting the kids. Yeah. Excellent. Mm -hmm. We're speaking with Tim Patterson, a licensed uh, family 
uh, counselor and marriage and couples therapist. We're coming near the end of our show, Tim, and mm. we wonder if you have a health tip for us. You mentioned it earlier. Oh, wow. Yes, I do. <laughs> I'm really so, excited about this. Yeah. So it's so simple, you know, really. Uh, I stopped eating wheat. Oh, good. Yeah. Not easy to do, but I stopped eating bread and pasta and cereal uh, you know, cakes and pies and all that wonderful good stuff. And, um, I've lost, um, 14 pounds over the last, over the last four, I've done, been doing this for a little over four months now. And that in combination with, a with a weight training and a, um, an enduro training program, um, I've lost, you know, basically what they call the wheat belly, which is, uh, which is terrific. And I feel good. And my wife's loving it. Oh, so, fantastic. So that's my health tip. <laughs> and of course, that's n- n- no, no great uh, revelation there. No, but... it is a great revelation. <laughs> oh, All of our health is. tips are great revelations. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but it, sur- it certainly worked for me. Wow. Tim, was bef- before you, as you were preparing for this show, mm-hmm. uh, was there anything that you really wanted to bring out that we didn't get to today that you're not going to go home and have to go into therapy because... Uh, yeah. I didn't discuss it. If there is, bring uh, it up. I, I would just say it, it kind of goes to um, um, the, the, the different types of therapy, I guess. So one of the things that I, I think is true and I've, I've learned in, in terms of how, how the process of therapy has evolved is, is the saying that insight is necessary but not sufficient. Mm. So, you know, people can come into therapy and they can gain insight and they can kind of get stuck there. But you have to be willing and able to apply what you know in, in your real time, in your real relationship or your, or your real life. And so um, I think it's, it's very important that the, the therapy provide uh, tools that allow people to operationalize their insights with one another. So I'm not adverse at all to creating little assignments that couples take home with them to do Hmm. um, that help to kind of uh, help them exercise their insights, sort of like building a muscle uh, and allow them to um, you know succeed and inevitably fail because we that's how we learn through our mistakes and then bring those experiences back into the work that we do to um, help them gain uh, more insight. And in, in that way, um, I always tell couples that, you know, it's, I'm not a prescriptive therapist, so it's, I, I'm not here to give you advice. I'm not here to tell you what you should go home and do. I, I'm not the guru with the answers. I'm more of a facilitator that helps you find the answers that will work best for you based upon your developing understanding of who you are as a couple and as you are uh, as individuals. Great. Yeah. I, we needed that. Oh, good. <laughs> good, good. I think we needed that. Uh, Christina, any thoughts? We need those tools. <laughs> I don't think it's just about therapy. I think those become life tools in our little mm. chest, you know, of, of wonderful things that we need to put in place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we expect that from you, Mr. Patterson, a, a list of those tools. Okay. That we can, oh, can we put them on our website? Sure. Uh, I, I'll try. 
I'll, I'll tell you one little, do I have 30 more seconds or something? Yes. I have, 42 more seconds. Okay, <laughs> 42, are now 41. Um, so one of the things that I will, when a couple seems ready to do this, just this is nothing more than building a little goodwill between the two of them. I'll ask them to list, oh, you know, maybe a dozen small, positive, and specific things that they would love to receive from their partner. So not something like, well, I wish they would care more, because that's so general, you know, or I wish that they would put their uh, dirty clothes in the hamper. That's sort of a dirty positive, you know, it's kind of got a backhand in it. <laughs> but something like, I would love it if they would bring me a fresh squeezed glass of orange juice in the morning, you know, when I'm still in bed. Or I'd love it if we would shower together. Mm. Or I'd love a back rub. Something small, positive, and specific. And they'll, they'll list these, you know, maybe a dozen or so. And I'll ask them to post them. And every day, look at their partner's list. Review it, even if they have it memorized, to just review it as a bit of a ritual. And then select something to do for their partner each day off their list. Very nice. And if more things are thought of, that's great. Then you just go to your list and you add it, and the partner will see it there the next day. Uh, so it's, it's, it's not something that um, necessarily um, uh, you know, cures what ails them, but it's a, it's, a, it's a nice little way to start mm -hmm. to generate goodwill between them, and that can help, believe it or not, uh, how they listen to one another and how they how they, what I like to call holding their shape, how they hold their shape with each other when conflicts do arise. Mm. That was great. Although I must say that yeah. coming from Florida, uh, fresh squeezed uh, <laughs> good orange juice does seem to cure everything. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can believe that. <laughs> uh, also, showering together, I think, yeah. would be in there. So. <laughs> Are you starting your list right now? Always Glenn? good. <laughs> Yeah. No, I've had my list forever. I have it tattooed all over me. <laughs> Always good. I'm really grateful to our very special guest, Tim Patterson, a licensed uh, family and marriage therapist, mm -hmm. for sharing his wisdom and expertise and experience with us. I would also like to thank my teachers and my healers for keeping me on my journey. Thank you, Christina and Segovia and Yoga Hub, for allowing this uh, platform to help people all over the world in terms of optimal health. And I look forward to getting together with everyone again on Magical Medical Tour when we will experience and explore another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. Until our next time and next meeting, thank you so much, Tim Patterson, and I wish you all optimal health. <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. Woolman. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> thank you, Mr. Patterson. This was a lot of fun. Yep. Now, now post-show, we're going to even have more fun. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding. <laughs> and uh, of course, we would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. If you would like to get in touch with um, Mr. Tim Patterson and check him out as his therapy, he is on a website by the name of theravive.com, theravive.com. 
And if you plug in his name, Tim Patterson, uh, you he will come right up um, here in LA. He practices, I do believe, in two locations. So go for it. Give him a call. And if you would like to connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman, you can do so through his website, glennwoolman.com, where I do, um, of course, I always say, check out his metaphor square breath, you know, for you couples who are needing a little space and to get a little space within yourself to, to be able to breathe and think clearly. Metaphor square breath, it's wonderful. It gets you grounded and it helps you definitely strive through those hurdles. You know, we would like to thank each and every one of you um, for helping us uh, make the show what it is and bringing it to the 10th Annual Podcast Awards. Thank you all for voting. Today is going to be the last day of voting for the 10th Annual Podcast Awards. And if you can do so, that would be super. And if you can't, we totally understand. But we thank you so much for your love and support. And we are always grateful for any feedback that you might have, your comments, your suggestions. Remember, you can put it into the site at any time and we will get back to you. Or you can give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Until next time, namaste. I've seen some parents who hold on to their child and they just wish that they could like walk into a vet clinic and take the shot like we would give, you know, an animal. And Well, well let me just say that there are doctors who assist their patients in this way um, under the table and, mm -hmm. um, you know, against the law, um, but out of compassion. Um, and of course, no one's going to come forward because if they did, they would be guilty of assisting a suicide or whatever the yes. uh, uh, a homicide. So, um, but we do know that this happens. Mm -hmm.